0: we will invite you this evening to turn with me in God's Word to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I know in the bulletin I said we'd begin at verse 50, uh, but I've decided to begin in verse 1 and then go to verse 8 and then we'll turn to verse 50. So we'll we'll begin our reading in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He also appeared to me. Then we'll flip to verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. May he add his blessing to it, and we'll invite you then, second, to turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism, our Heidelberg Catechism. We turn to Lord's Day 17. It's going to be found on page 218 in the forms and prayers. Lord's Day 17. Question 45. Only one question this evening. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death so that He might make us share in the righteousness He obtained for us by His death. Second, by His power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. My most dear friends, one of the most challenging things we all must face in this life is our own mortality. Death is frightening, and death is frightening in a multitude of ways. It's not just the prospect of what will come after that scares us, but even what we leave behind, what we weren't able to accomplish, or the quality of life that death so often hinders. In no uncertain terms, death is our last, but it is our greatest enemy. It's a relentless, grim reaper. It shows no regard for your age, your wealth, your health, or your status in life. It will rob parents of their children. It will rob wives and children of their breadwinner and protector. It will take an aging spouse leaving a gray-haired senior citizen without a lifelong companion and friend. Sometimes it will come suddenly, and then other times it comes slowly as if stalking us, haunting us, And every single one of us has been touched by death. The Lord's Day 17 reminds us that we do not sorrow as those who have no hope, but we have a great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Although the Heidelberg Catechism when speaking of Jesus Christ has only spoke of His humiliation up until this point, Unfolding at length His incarnation, His suffering, His death, and His descent into hell. But as we turn to Lord's Day 17, we see His exaltation. Don't miss the joy that the writer has in question 45. Jesus' humiliation, Jesus' death, was not to last forever. No, He rose from the dead. It seems, I don't know if you noticed this, that our catechism instructor is so excited about Jesus' resurrection that he misses something. If you've noticed during the last 16 Lord's Days, oftentimes, the instructor begins with a question like this. What does it mean? Or, what do you understand by And the reason he asks a question like that is to prove the truth of what he's saying. But here he cuts right past what does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead. He moves around, how do you understand the resurrection of Jesus to the dead? And he goes straight to the benefit. How does it benefit us that Jesus rose from the dead? And it's fitting that he does this. Because the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is a great mystery that Christ rose from the dead. It's not something that we can understand in the rubric of understanding that is given to us in this world. But by faith we believe Jesus rose from the dead. By faith we believe that we will rise from the dead. By faith we rejoice that death is defeated, and all Christ's resurrection gives us. It's benefit, benefit, benefit. We become exhaustingly rich in Christ's resurrection from the dead. You see, here's our theme for our time together this evening. It's not in your bulletin, but death has been defeated by Jesus. And death will be defeated for me. Death has been defeated for Jesus, and death will be defeated for me. We see this in three movements from our Heidelberg Catechism, that Jesus rose for our justification, He rose for our sanctification, and He also rose for our glorification. Notice first that Jesus rose for our justification. We come this evening to Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, and this would have been a church that he was well familiar with, having planted the church, likely around A.D. 50-52, to which he then later, uh, in our terms, took another call. He moves on from Corinth to the church of Ephesus, And only three years after he plants the church in Corinth, he hears word about issues going on in the Corinthian church. And not just any issues, he hears about major issues going on. Now every church plant will have various struggles. One thing we don't think about is who's going to set up the pews today, or who's going to fold the bulletin But the problem the Corinthian church was having wasn't only congregationally, but it was also theologically. Notice their congregational issues. I'm going to go through this list with you. In chapters 1-4, through they're having issues with their church leaders. In chapter 6, they're having problems with lawsuits, members suing one another. In chapter 3, they're having issues with the Lord's Supper. In chapters 2 through 12, they're having issues with the spiritual gifts. These are all problems congregationally. But they also had a problem with cultural compromise. They had an issue in chapter 5 with incest. In chapter 6, Paul deals with sexual immorality. In chapter 7, he deals with marital issues. In chapter 8, he dined, he, ha, or he has an issue with dining in pagan temples. In chapter 11, he deals with head coverings. This church had a lot of problems. And the reason I tell you all this is because their greatest issue is elaborated upon in chapter 15. 15 look what he says in verse 3 this is of the first importance more important than the problem of incest and sexual immorality more important than disagreements regarding the lord's supper and spiritual gifts or dining in pagan temples, is that there were some, verse 12, 15, verse 12, who denied the resurrection of Christ. And of all the sins Paul has to deal with in 1 Corinthians, of all the knots he has to untangle as a pastor, he says, this is the one which their salvation depends on. Look what he says in verses 1 and 2 of our chapter this morning. This evening. Now I would remind you, brothers, listen to this, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he goes on to elaborate that the gospel is the resurrection. The word vain here is so important. To make something vain means that it is without purpose. He's saying a faith that doesn't cling to the resurrection of Christ. A faith that doesn't trust that Christ rose from the dead. It's useless. It has no purpose. Now why is that? You know, the Bible has always taught that when somebody is born, they are not just a physical creature, but they are body and soul. Little children who are here this evening, you have a soul. And Jesus died to pay the price to save your soul. And sin has affected us Body and soul. And so if we want to be saved, we need to be saved body and soul. But when we deny the res- resurrection of Christ, we are saying He can save my soul, but He cannot save my body. Bovink put it this way. The benefits of Christ would never have reached us if He had not been raised from the dead. And seated in exaltation at the right hand of God. But the Christian religion is different. It's so much more than that. It's the perfect redemption, he says, of the whole man. The body and soul of man. The doctrine of Christ's death and resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. That Jesus doesn't just cleanse our soul, He doesn't just die for our bodies, but He redeems the whole of us. All of us, top from bottom, inside and out, past and future. He redeems it all. Paul says, take this away, and Christi- all our hopes of eternity sink at once. Take this away, and we make nothing of Christianity. And he shows us this in the life or the death and resurrection of Jesus. He tasted the bitterness of death. Look at verse 3 with me, if you will. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now, if we look back at the Heidelberg Catechism, what does it say? It actually, I want you to notice here, it doesn't just speak of his death, but it says he overcame death in general. Because Christ, in His life, was afflicted not only with His own death, but He was afflicted with all kinds of death. You see, our Lord Jesus experienced the sorrows of death to the dregs. To the bottom. Jesus knows what it's like to have a friend who dies. In John chapter 11, do you remember? Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knows he will raise him from the dead, but seeing his friend's death causes him to weep. Jesus likely also know, likely also knows what it means to lose a parent. Scholars have looked at the life of Christ and noticed that after Luke chapter 2 Joseph is never mentioned again. When Jesus is 12 years old, the next time we hear of Jesus in John 2, he's at the age of 30 and Joseph is never mentioned again. And then as Christ hangs upon the cross in John chapter 19, he looks upon the apostle John and he says, "John, take care of my mother." What this means is that Joseph likely died. And Jesus likely stood at the graveside of His Father, His earthly Father, and saw Him buried. When Jesus came into this world, He not only tasted the bitterness of His own death, but He tasted the bitterness of the effects of death. He knows what it's like to weep when your friend dies. He knows what it's like to lose a parent and to go home and have that emptiness in your life. During His ministry, people brought Him their dead children. The death... That death is the depth of our suffering. And He is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, acquainted with our sorrows. He is so acquainted that Christ wept about the prospect of His own death in Gethsemane. He experiences death. And He even experiences spiritual death upon the cross. He truly tasted the bitterness of death. You see, power in this world, beauty, wealth, these things can overcome almost anything in this world. But in death, they meet their match. Thomas Gray, a poet, says this, the boast of heraldry, which means Status, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth, ere the grave awaits the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead to the grave. And we are told in the Gospels that after Jesus died, His body was taken from the cross, He was laid in a tomb, they sealed the grave. And it says the disciples wept. And they went back to their lives, back to their fishing. Death had seemingly won again. You know the story. Friday, he lay in the tomb. Saturday, the Sabbath, he lay in the tomb. But as surely as the sun rose that Sunday morning, and the sunlight lit the Palestinian countryside, so did our Savior rise from the dead. He broke the chains of death and He stood in that grave as our risen King. Why? The Bible says Jesus was on a rescue mission to conquer the power of death by His divine love by his perfect self-denial, by his absolute obedience to the Father. And so even though he was dead, blood began to pump through his body. His flesh became warm. And he stood up in that grave by his own power, by the Father's blessing, by the Spirit's work. The pangs of death were broken and Paul says in verse 3, he did it. To forgive you of your sin. His death paid for our sins. And in his resurrection, he applies his righteousness to us. It's as if he rose from the dead and he went to his Father and said, I know they've sinned, give them my righteousness. I know they've sinned, but I've paid the penalty. Give them My righteousness. And God did. In His resurrection, He makes us to share in the righteousness He obtained by His death. There is deep consolation here. We will all Short of heaven, short of Christ's return, experience death in this life. We will see our loved ones pass away. We will die ourselves. But the consolation is this God truly knows the sorrow of death. He truly knows what it's like to lose someone who you love, He knows what it's like to fear death to come but He also truly is Emmanuel with us in that fear. Even in the worst of sufferings, God is with us. And He will not allow us to despair. For we can look to the resurrection. And we can know that through all the trials and all the terrors of life, We know that Christ will not abandon his church even when his church is in the grave. That when we give up our final breath, it's not the end. Take heart, knowing that your Savior beckons you through death to eternal life. Jesus died for our justification but He also died for our sanctification, says the catechism. The second benefit of Jesus' resurrection is that by His power, we are raised to a new life. Here the catechism, of course, is presupposing something about us. What kind of people need to be raised from the dead? Alive people? No. Dead people need to be raised from the dead. See, the catechism, like the Bible, tells us that we need new life. Because, remember what we heard this morning, every man, woman, child are born in sin. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we take our catechism and we flip back to question 43, we see what it's like to live the old life. The instructor tells us, The old life, by His power, our old man is crucified, put to death, buried with Him. Look at this. So that the evil desires of the flesh. That's the old life. To live in the evil desires of the flesh. To be dead. Spiritually speaking. But the catechism says, in Jesus' resurrection, He gives us new life. And look what it's, look in the, at the tense in which it speaks. It's not a new life to come. For the future, it says we're already, present tense, raised to a new life. Remember what Jesus said in John 5. He says, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. And He has passed from death to life. I don't know about you, but I've been to enough funerals to know that we still experience death this side of heaven, don't we? What Christ brings, the catechism says, first is spiritual life. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, there's something you miss, unless you're a Greek philologist, which some of you may be, but I highly doubt. There's something we miss in this passage. You see, in verse 3, when Paul speaks of Jesus' death and burial, he uses what we call the past tense. Which means it happened in the past, and it was a one-time event, But the verb for He was raised is called the perfect tense. It means it happens once, but it has ongoing, continuing relevance for us today. More simply put, if you're not a Greek scholar, Jesus was raised from the dead and continues His life through us. Christ empowers us to do what we couldn't do to live the life we couldn't live in our own strength. Remember what Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can fight with the sins that so often overwhelm me and win. I can resist the devil, and he will flee. I can face hardship. I can preach the Gospel. In Christ's resurrection, He gives me strength for the day. In believers, Christ lives on. His resurrected life is now my life. And this is all throughout the Bible. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. That is that the life of the vine comes to expression in the branches. We have spiritual life. We can bear fruit. We can follow Him only if He first lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He gives new life. And so if you're a Christian here today, let me take you back to pre-confession class. For some of you that may be longer than others. Before you made your profession of faith. One question that we ask our students who take the class here is, what is the difference between justification and sanctification? Of course, you all know, justification is the forgiveness of our sins, and sanctification is living a life of holiness. And if you said that, you are right and for you young kids write that down well all of you should write it down but here's what i'm trying to the point i'm trying to make if he gives us new life by his resurrection that means the same thing that justifies us is the same thing that sanctifies us the grace that justifies is also the grace that sanctifies When God calls us to live in holiness, He is not calling you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. He is not calling you to live a life by the power of your own flesh. God calls us to holiness by living a life of grace. To live life in the resurrection power of Jesus. Men, lead your families, not because you are strong, but by the power of His grace. Ladies, serve your families. Submit to your husbands in the power of His grace. Children, submit to your parents in the power of His grace. Masters, treat your slaves well. Slaves, submit to your masters in the power of His grace. We can forgive our families. We can serve one another. We can live a new life not because we are able in and of ourselves, but because He gives us the power of His grace. And how powerful is His grace? Look at the first line in the Heidelberg Catechism again. Question 45. By this power, He has overcome death. It is a grace so powerful that it can take a dead, rotting corpse and raise it to new life. If God can raise Christ from the dead, surely He can work in our hearts by the power of His grace, to sanctify us. Jesus rose for our justification. He rose for our sanctification. But third and finally, we want to see that He rose for our glorification. This is the third benefit the catechism mentions. It says that Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Those whom Christ has justified, he will sanctify. And those whom he sanctifies, he will glorify. This is what Paul is talking about in verses 50 through 58. And he is speaking of a day in the future, he's speaking of a day to come, the day of resurrection. And notice what he says about this day. There's three things he points out about this day to come. First, he says that day of resurrection will be a day of horror for some. For others, it will be a day of glorification and a day of celebration. You see, the conclusion of our sanctification is not that we die and go to heaven and become spiritual like the angels. No, the future is not immaterial. But we're told in Revelation 21 that the heavens will come down. And God will cleanse and renew and perfect this world. and Christ will return on the clouds of heaven. And by His power, He will resurrect the dead. And Paul says in verse 50, it will not be the same for every person. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For many, the day of resurrection will be a day of horror. Because the mortal body that exists in its sinful state cannot dwell in the presence of God. It will be a day of horror for many who go to the final judgment in their perishable body with their sin in their body and Christ will stand upon this earth and He will separate the sheep and the goats to which He will say to those goats, those people who have stayed in their sins, He will say, depart from Me. I never knew you. So how can our catechism say in that third point that it is a blessed resurrection? Catechism calls it a blessed resurrection for the church because death has been defeated in Jesus and death will be defeated for me. Jesus' victory over death will become my victory over death in that last day. Jesus' benefits He receives in His resurrection will become my benefits in that last day. That there will be a real, physical, bodily resurrection in the life to come. Meaning, what He experienced in that tomb will then become my experience. The same power that raised Christ from the dead will raise me from the dead. You and I will not remain in the grave, but we will hear the sound of the trumpet. And Christ will descend from heaven with the shout of the archangel and in a twinkling of an eye, all of the dead And Christ will rise from the grave to be with Him bodily forever. It's a day of glorification. Where the worst of our enemies, the most evil of enemies, the greatest of enemies, death will be vanquished. Defeated, destroyed by the power of Christ. I suspect for many of you, if we look into our own hearts, we would say that the hardest pain that we have dealt with has been from death. Whether it's the death of a parent, of a spouse, of a child, of a friend, there is scarcely a thing more challenging that we will face in this life. But here is our hope that Jesus can make even the worst evil, the worst loss, the worst pain right again you see the biblical view of the resurrection of the dead is not just that he consoles you for the loss of life consoles you for the loss of that life you always wanted but he actually restores you to the life that you've always wanted This means that when Jesus resurrects us from the dead and changes us into our glorified bodies, that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make glory and joy with Him even greater. That's why Paul says this will be a day of celebration. God and Christ will reverse our greatest pain, our greatest hurt, and He will make all things new. So much so, that when we see our loved ones, with tears in our eyes, we will say, Paul says, death. Death has been swallowed up in victory. It is we who will say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We will see our children again. We will see our parents again. Our spouses again. We will see all of the dead in Christ. And we will look upon Jesus and say, He did it all. Every wrong he made right. Every death in him he reversed. He absorbed the sting of death in his death and resurrection. And so the benefit which Christ has given unto us can it be calculated? Can we give it a value? We can't comprehend it. Because He gives us nothing less than a whole, perfect salvation, body and soul. He he will redeem us from the greatest of evils. He will give us the highest of goods. We rejoice this evening. In a crucified Lord, who is at the same time a risen Lord, a humiliated and an exalted Savior, a King who is first but also last, who is dead and now lives, and who promises to wipe every tear from our eye, and who promises to resurrect us unto life eternal. Can we rejoice this evening? This is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we know how death came into this world through our own sinfulness. And it is the just reward of our own folly. And yet, Lord, it hurts And it is painful. And that You could have in Your righteousness allowed us to dwell in its misery. But in Your mercy, You looked upon us and chose to accept death in Your Son, in Yourself, to redeem us from the grave. And that You have given us a pledge That not only others, but also us, Lord, will be resurrected from the dead where we shall see our Savior face to face and be made like Him, glorified with Him so that we can rejoice. Father, we look forward to that day and we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly and set all things aright in Your Son. We pray in Christ's name, Amen.